Amen. You can have a seat. You know, we live in a time when in our culture we are so polarized, maybe as much as ever in our culture. We want to take sides on everything there is to take sides. And normally it has to do with where we line up politically, right? On every issue that comes up, we feel the need to side with some group and this is us and that's them and they're just wrong. I mean, they've got it all wrong. And so we don't want to talk with them. We don't want to have conversation with them. We don't want to learn from them. They're just going to stay over there and we're over here. And so we're at odds on so many issues. And that, that's true in politics, but it also spills over even into church life. And there's lots of people who have looked sort of across the line and said, I don't know how that person can call themselves a Christian and support that political party, that candidate, that cause. There's just no way they can still be a Christian. No way they can conscientiously go before God and support that stuff over there, that person over there. And so we start drawing lines. And if we're not careful, we draw lines to keep people in and to keep people out and, and if we're not careful as well, we begin to add standards to God's word for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have to line up with me on all these issues or I don't really believe you're a Christian. Now the truth is, we're not the first ones to do that. Christians have been doing that all throughout Christian history, sort of drawing lines to keep people in, to keep people out. And normally what we do is we draw a line and it's all the people who agree with me are on the inside and the people who don't agree with us, they're on the outside. And let's make sure we keep them out because they can't possibly be acceptable to God if they don't agree with us on all these issues. And so we keep people out. Now sometimes, once in a while, we might reverse the lines. And we might say, you know what? If you look at my life and you see what I've done and who I am, I'm just not sure that God could ever include me on the inside. Because you see, it crosses political lines. It's not just politics. It can also be who you are, where you're from, what you look like, what language you speak, the stuff you've done, the things you've said, the things you've thought. That can keep you out. We love to draw the lines. You see, we're really good at limiting God's grace. We're really good at saying God's grace goes this far, but I'm not sure He'll forgive what you've done. Or, I'm not sure he could ever forgive what I've done. We limit God's grace. Today, we continue in this series that I'm calling Real Life. And we're thinking about what it means to live a life of following Jesus Christ. And, and we began with, we want life to mean something. And we said, if we want life to mean something, if we want life to be meaningful, it's got to start with Jesus. And that, that really is the operating principle of this series. And we're taking that and applying it in lots of areas of our lives. And the way we're doing that is, we're looking at the Gospel of John. And thinking about the way that John describes the story of Jesus and allowing that to teach us 
what a meaningful life is all about because that's what he says he wrote this for. In John 20, he tells us that he wanted us to have life, both now and forever. And so we're studying the story and hearing what John has to say. And so today, we come to John chapter 4. The way we're approaching this is we're like flying over at a high altitude and then dropping in, parachuting in to specific stories and hearing John tell about the life of Jesus. Now, what we do know, and I mentioned this before, is that, that John probably wrote later than the other gospel writers. And my guess is he was aware of what was in at least one of the other gospels, maybe all three. They tell the story from a similar point of view. They tell the story with a similar outline. And though the grand narrative is the same, John gives us some stories, some details that the other three don't include. And my guess is John wanted to make sure we had these stories because they give us insight into who Jesus was in some ways that we just wouldn't know if we didn't have these stories. So in John chapter 4, we come to one of those stories. One of those stories that we only find in the Gospel of John and that fills in some important blanks in how we understand Jesus, how we understand each other, and how we can have a meaningful life. A life that counts for something. So the story in John chapter 4 goes this way. <clears throat> Jesus was in Jerusalem for a festival. And things had gotten a little heated. People began to notice who Jesus was. And he could tell the tensions were rising. So Jesus decided to leave Jerusalem. Leave the area around Jerusalem that was called Judea. And head north to the land where he grew up. Still a land of the Jews, but it's called Galilee, away from Judea, and, and he's going to travel sort of home. Now what we know about that journey is that many Jews would cross the Jordan River, travel north, and then cross the river back into Galilee. Why would they go to all that effort? Because between Judea and Galilee was Samaria. And the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans, so they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria entirely. Now really, it is hard to overestimate just how much animosity there was between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. I mean, there were racial differences. The Jews called the Samaritans half-breeds. There were religious differences. Both, they both worshipped God, but in different ways. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. So 200 years before Jesus, a Jewish king marched north and destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. The, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. There was a time when Samaritans came south and desecrated the temple with the bones of dead men. That's how much they thought of one another. They just stayed away from each other most of the time, completely avoiding contact. And then we come to this story in John chapter 4, and we read this as the story starts in verse 4. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And I would say, hang on here. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, right? In fact, many Jews, when they went from Judea to Samaria... Uh, to, to Galilee, went around Samaria on purpose. There were ways to avoid Samaria. I think John is telling us something more about the mission and character of Jesus than he is about the geography of ancient Palestine. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He chose to go through Samaria because he was compelled by God to go through Samaria. That's why he had to go. 
John tells us that Jesus, probably like most people, got up early and traveled, and it was about noon when he came to the town of Sychar, a Samaritan village. And he entered that town, and it's notable because it was on land that was given by Jacob, also called Israel, the patriarch of the people of Israel, to his son Joseph. This town contained Jacob's well, and it is to this well that Jesus went. His disciples went off to find food, so he went by himself to the well about noon. John tells us that he was tired and he was thirsty because of his journey. And in that, just that little phrase, what John reminds us is that Jesus had a real physical body just like the ones we have. Bodies that get tired when you walk half a day. Bodies that get thirsty when you expend that much energy. And so Jesus sat down to rest and to get water. Now what people would have expected at noontime in a village in the ancient world is that you would go to the well and it would be vacant. Because most women came to the well early in the morning while it was still cool because carrying water is not easy. They came there and they would gather, draw water for all the household to use the rest of the day. And they would gather there and sort of share the news, maybe a little gossip, catch up with one another. And then everyone would disperse back to their homes with the water that they needed for the rest of the day. And so if you came at noon when it was getting warmer, as Jesus did, you would expect it to be vacant. But on this day, Jesus went to the well, Jacob's well, in the village of Sychar, in Samaria, and a woman came up, a Samaritan woman. Now in the ancient world, if you were a Jewish man, you didn't speak to any woman who was not part of your family in private, ever. Okay? It was considered improper, almost flirtatious, right? Okay, so you could talk to your wife in private, your daughters, your granddaughters, your mom, your grandma, your cousins, your aunts. You could talk to all those people, but if it's somebody outside the family and you're in private, you do not, in fact, you don't want to be caught in private, you do not speak to her, period. And if you're a Jew, you never speak to a Samaritan because they're unclean. And especially Samaritan women, they're dangerous. In fact, even the vessel that a Samaritan woman would carry to the well to get water was considered unclean. You couldn't drink from it just because she carried it. And this woman comes to the well at noon. Why does she come at noon? Why does she come by herself when no one else is there? Why is she there at noon when the other women gathered in the morning? Well, we don't know that yet, but she's there. And when she came to the well... Jesus asked her for a drink. Now, in our 21st century ears, we go, okay, Jesus was hot, he was tired, he was thirsty, he asked for a glass of water, what's the big deal? But everyone who read this in John's day would have said, I can't believe he did that. They would have been shocked, flabbergasted that Jesus asked this woman for water. And guess what? She was just as surprised as those ancient readers were. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not, Samar do not associate with Samaritans. And Luke sort of tells us that at the end. How can you ask me for a drink, she says. I, 
I mean, don't you know better? You're, you're not allowed to do this. I'm not allowed to do this. We shouldn't have anything to do with one another. Listen to how Jesus responds, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What's Jesus talking about? There's, there's no living water. Water here is still water. It's in a well. It's not moving water. So what's Jesus saying? Now, a couple of phrases in there are important. First of all, this is the only place in the Gospel of John that we see the word gift. John just doesn't use that word anywhere else in his Gospel. But John would have been very aware of the way the word gift was used in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, the word gift is almost always used to point to the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit at work in His people. And when we come to the phrase living water, what we also know is that living water was an image that was used in ancient Jewish literature and even in the Old Testament to point to God's Spirit. So what's Jesus saying? If you knew who I was, you would know that the gift I can give you is God's Spirit at work in your life. I can give you God's Spirit. She just sort of looks at Jesus and says, I'm not sure what you're talking about, but you don't even have a bucket. So you're not giving me anything. Verse 13, Jesus replies to that. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I can give you more than you know. Now she hears that and she's like, that sounds awesome. You know, if I didn't have to come to this stupid well and drag water back to my house every day, that would be great. So give me this water you're talking about. She sort of misses that whole eternal life business. But she's all for this everlasting water. And then Jesus makes a request that sort of seems to come out of nowhere. It doesn't fit the rest of the conversation. They're talking about water and suddenly Jesus goes in an entirely different direction he says, why don't you go and get your husband and bring him back here? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he ask about that? She knew. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus knew. He said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And now we know a lot more about this woman. Now we know why she comes to the well at noon. Now we know why she doesn't come to the well when all the other women are there because the other women have names for women like her and they were unafraid to use them. Nobody wants to be around her. If ever there was a person that Jesus should not have been talking to, this is her. 
Everyone would have painted this woman outside the line. She is always, always, always on the outside. And suddenly when Jesus says that, she knows. He knows stuff he shouldn't know. She's never talked to Jesus. She's never told these stories. And yet, here Jesus is. He's laying out her life before her. Now, I don't know if she's just ready to change the subject because this is a sore subject. Or she's recognizing, I mean, Scripture tells us she sees Jesus as a prophet. Like, he's got to be a prophet. If he knows this about me, he's a prophet. And if he's a prophet, there's a question I've got for him. Something I've been wanting to know. Especially from a Jew. She says, okay, you Jews, you worship down in Jerusalem at the temple. We worship, and she could have pointed because you could see it from there. We worship over there on Mount Gerizim. Simple question, either or, which one is it? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Where's the place you're supposed to worship God? Simple question, straightforward. She's looking for an answer. Jesus won't give it. Verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Things are changing. A new wind is blowing. Things are going to be different and worship's not going to be just in the temple in Jerusalem. Worship's not going to be just up on that mountain. Skip down to verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come. It's already here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And my guess is when the woman heard that, she said, what? What are you talking about? What does it mean to worship in the Spirit and in truth? And Christians have debated this a little bit in the last 2,000 years. What does, does it mean to worship in the Spirit and in truth? Now, here's my best guess. First of all, Jesus is saying what worship is not. Worship is not just going to the right place and sort of going through the motions and walking out and saying, okay, I did it. I was in the room when it happened. I was at worship. Check it off. I can go do something else now. That's not worship. Jesus is saying there's something more. We are called to, to worship in the Spirit, in God's Spirit, and in our spirit. In the depths of who we are, it's got to come from there for it to be worship. And, and you know, it strikes me, and I didn't plan this, but isn't it interesting that here we are talking about this passage on the second Sunday we've gathered back in this room? Because, you know, for those weeks that we couldn't be here, lots of us, me included, were thinking, this is, this is just not the same. It just doesn't feel like worship. And I'm glad we've got sort of the online thing. And I'm glad we can continue to do it. But for maybe for you, you're thinking, this just isn't really what I think of when we worship. And what Jesus is telling us is this. 
If worship is just about walking in this room and doing what we do and then leaving and saying, done, worshiped, you're wrong. Because just being in these walls does not mean worship has happened. And it's also saying worship cannot be contained by these walls. Worship is bigger than what happens in this place. Now, this room was constructed for worship, and I'm glad we've got it. And I'm glad that we can gather in the name of Jesus and sing together and pray and take communion, as we're going to do in a few minutes, and talk through God's Word. And I'm glad that can be worship, and it's a blessing. But if we think worship is contained in just that, Jesus says we've missed part of what it is. So he says to worship in the Spirit and in truth. What truth? Well, the truth that I think John is pointing to is the truth that carries all the way through this Gospel and is summarized in John 20, verse 31, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. All of worship begins there. All of our worship begins with the fact that we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then everything expands off of just those two central truths. That's why we're here, and everything we talk about grows from that. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now the woman's still a little confused. Because she says this. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, and we've talked about that. Two words mean the same thing, just two different languages. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. They both mean anointed one, the king. I know that the king, the expected one, the fulfillment of prophecy is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now the Jews and the Samaritans both had an understanding of Messiah. It was a little different. The, Messiah, the, the Samaritans thought of the Messiah more as sort of a new Moses to come and give instruction and law. So she's, she's saying, well, yeah, I, I hear you, strange man that I've never met before, but I have no idea what you mean. I'll just wait for the Messiah, and when he comes, he'll make it clear. And then verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I... The one speaking to you, I am he. Now here in this story, speaking to this Samaritan woman, that every Jew that Jesus knew in his world in the first century would have painted outside the lines. In fact, most Samaritans would have painted her outside the lines. To her, for the first time in this gospel, Jesus proclaims himself to be the Messiah. He chooses this moment to say, I am the anointed one, the Christ. And it's just at that moment that Jesus' disciples show back up and they see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman that he shouldn't have been talking to. And the eyebrows go up, but no one is brave enough to ask a question. And maybe because these 12 men show up at the well, 
she decides it's time to leave. And so there's a conversation with Jesus and his disciples, but the woman goes back. She goes back to the people that she knows. She goes back to her friends and family, maybe the ones who have excluded her all these years, and she says this in verse 29. I love this phrase. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see this guy who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? He's just told her that he is. Could it be that it's the truth? And you know what? Everybody wanted to hear her story, so they're ready to go see Jesus, right? And so they all take off to hear what Jesus has to say. She brings them all to him. In verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. They believed because they knew the story. And somehow Jesus knew. And then it concludes with these three verses. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And because Jesus knew that these were unclean people, he said, no way, and he left town. No. To everyone's surprise. I'm sure to the 12 disciples' surprise. Maybe to the Samaritans' surprise. Certainly to the people who read this first this was a surprise. Jesus stayed two days. Can you imagine a white man staying with a black family for two days in, Jim Crow, uh, in the Jim Crow South? No, it doesn't happen. It's unexpected. But it's what Jesus did to overcome all the things that were dividing his people and these people. And because of his words, many more became believers. He had some disciples, but these Samaritans, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know, listen to this, that this man really is the Savior of the world. The word Savior appears in the Gospel of John one time. And it's on the lips of these Samaritans. And certainly the concept of Jesus saving is all the way through the Gospels, but this word appears one time on their lips. He is not the Messiah, the King of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. Do you hear how big that phrase is? The Savior of all of humanity. I mean, this harkens back to the very beginning. We talked about it in John chapter 1. This cosmic picture of Jesus at creation, full of grace and truth, come to save all of humanity, and then they see it before anybody else does. The Savior of the world for everyone. So what does this story teach us? Very simple lesson. Everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've said, who your family is, what you look like, the language you speak. 
It doesn't matter. Everyone. He's the Savior of the world. Everyone is invited. Now, Jesus never said, keep doing what you're doing. It doesn't matter what. Jesus called people to repentance. He called people to change. We've talked about that. We're going to talk about it in John. But Jesus invited every single person to come to him. In other words, all the lines that people were drawing, Jesus brushed them aside and he just invited people to come. And if that's the truth, there's two things that I think should be at work in our lives. And the first is this. Our calling as Christians stands above all else. This speaks to the church, okay? So there's stuff that can divide us. All kinds of stuff. How much money we have, the kind of work we do, the politics we have, the kind of car we drive. All those things can divide us. None of that matters. Because we are followers of Jesus Christ and that is more important than any of the stuff that might tear us apart. And so when we start saying, if they do, if they, if they are this, if they're that, then I'm going to start painting them outside the lines. If they have faith in Jesus, that should pull us together. Second thing, if everyone is invited, we can't exclude anyone. You see, it's not my job. It's not my job to draw the lines and decide who's in and who's out. My job is to open the door and invite everyone in. It's not my job to say, if you vote for that person, you're out. If you're part of that political party, you're out. If your skin is this color, you're out. If you speak that language, you're out. If you've done this, you're out. Because everyone's invited. You see, what my job is, is to go to the people I know, the ones who love me and the ones who don't love me, so you got you to talk to this guy. He told me everything I ever did. And I believe he's the savior of the world. Let's pray together. Now we know that there's been times we've drawn the lines to exclude people we didn't want to be around. Oh, for so many reasons. And we look across our country and see divisions over politics and race and money and hurt and anger. And God, we pray that you will help us to be the ones who overcome that. The ones who say, our God has invited everyone. And he sent the Savior of the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.